Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skirsha. And I'm Clint Jones. And today, we're talking about The Last of Us, developed by Naughty Dog and published by Sony Computer Entertainment. It was released for PS3 back in June of 2013, with an HD remaster released shortly after for PS4 in 2014, and yet another version released in 2022 for PS5 as The Last of Us Part 1. So all these games basically uh, tell the same story, which we are going to spoil. So heads up if you have not played this uh, or any version of this game yet. And uh, I don't know, I guess the reason we're playing this is, uh, one, I eventually wanted to revisit this before going into The Last of Us 2, which I think I'm finally ready to play. But um, Clint, I think you actually revisited this first, right? Yeah, I mean, when they came out with the PS5 version, I knew I was at least going to check it out. So it was just a, an excuse to revisit again. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and honestly, a game like this, like, I don't feel like I need a, a ton of pushing to to revisit. I, this is only my second time playing, but I replayed the PS4 version. Um, you, it sounds like, played the PS5 version. So uh, you'll be covering the, the latest and greatest. I'll be giving my perspective on, uh, you know, a, a revisit several years after the fact. And um, yeah, boy, this game has aged like fine wine to me. Like it it just, everything immediately sort of just falls into place, especially with that opening chapter. Like, man, I I don't remember a game that just sort of gets off on such an excellent foot. I mean, not a happy foot, but it gets off on a very um, engaging foot. Yeah, it's super intense. And for background, I never played the PS3 version. Um, I know the, the PS3 version and the PS4 version, I think it was like right on the cusp of being at the end of that generation. So I never played that version, but I've played the PS4 remastered version a couple times and then coming back to this one. So I, I have a little insight on the difference between the two. I know there's a lot of confusion on, on the difference. It's the same game. I don't think there was a lot of mechanical differences. The, uh, the cutscenes and the acting are insanely different. Like they were able to do so much more with the technology now that they're able, able to take it even further. But... Yeah, I mean, even as a graphical tour de force, like I've, I did, I watched. A, I'll be honest, I watched a little Digital Foundry video about like what the the main differences between the two were, just because I was curious. I wanted to know like um, what I was, um, what what you and I, what the differences between what we were playing uh, was going to be. And to my mind, you you basically hit the nail on the head. Like lots of really big updates into mocap and emoting of the characters, just because we've gotten so much better at that now. But then. Um, the environments, of course, uh, re recreated in, in somewhat more believable ways, but not a ton mechanically, which says a lot about how much this game kind of got the mix right in terms of like feeling cinematic, but also being satisfying from a mechanical perspective. Yeah, they were way ahead of their time when this game came out, so that was all mechanically sound. Like you said, I don't think it was like the minute-to-minute gameplay that was like massively different. It was like the small variations in a person's face that like says a lot without saying anything like those little things you couldn't quite do before they can do just a little better now just like it's that little cherry on top necessary no but holy shit was it was it nice yeah and you know even like the version i played the ps4 remastered version like this to me uh it, get, it definitely got the point across. Like, there's a reason this game, you know, and, and we'll go into its history soon, but this there's a reason this is one of the most awarded games of all time, you know? Like, it is a piece of uh, high drama, you know? It's, or, well, I guess yep. camp, given it's sort of survival horror-ish, but regardless, it's very good, and uh, it, it definitely affects your emotions, and they, um, the writing is tight, 
the characters feel believable. They play off each other excellently. And even with the 2013 or 2014 tech that I was witnessing, like you feel for these characters and immediately sort of get in their skin right away. Uh, I can only imagine it's even better in the, the part one version. So you feel this is a survival horror game then? Uh, actually, this is one of the things that I have in, in my notes is I don't feel like it's a horror game, really. Definitely survival, but I guess it's sort of more action. Survival action. We'll call it survival action. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it definitely has... I'm, I'm looking at the checkboxes here. Limited ammo. Yeah. Zombies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's got all the things, but for, for my, maybe it's because it's got such a good story that I just see it more as like an action set piece than anything, I guess. There are definite like horror tropes, but I, I agree with you that I don't feel that this is a horror game. Um, definitely survival, though. Like there is a heavy, you know, the the scrounging and scavenging that you're doing. Lim- yeah, limited resources, um, sort of the, the the road trip journey. You know, reminiscent of like the road or Children of Men or or what, you know, what have you. Uh, definitely a survival story. Yeah. Maybe maybe the reason I feel like that is I feel like the zombies were just like a reason that society was breaking down. But the real story is the interaction between people and what people do when the stakes are high, when the guardrails are, are gone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and to that mind, maybe we should talk a little about a little bit about what inspired this game and where it came from. Because um, Naughty Dog, obviously a hugely uh, story developer. Uh, you know, you have your everything from Crash Bandicoot, Jack and Daxter, but more um, pertinently to this game, Uncharted. Yeah, uh, which you have some history with Uncharted, right? Oh, I've played the shit out of those games so many times. <laughs> uh, that was actually I bought a PS3 to play Uncharted. Um, that game was way ahead, again. It was way ahead of its time as far as the storytelling and just some of the motion capture stuff they were doing. Even in that game, I actually just replayed that this year. Still holds up really well. It's just surprising how much earlier they caught on to this than a lot of the other developers. Well, those games finally made their way to PC as a collection recently. The HD remaster collection came out on Steam. And I think it's really nice that we're finally getting all of these classic, you know, the, basically the PlayStation classics, quote unquote, all their first party games. Uh, you know, God of War just came out on Steam and did extremely well. So I think we're going to keep seeing this, right? Like a period of exclusivity for PlayStation and, and these first-party titles, and then eventually it makes its way to the broader um, gaming ecosystem. Um, and yeah, I, I am interested in eventually checking out the Uncharted series. I it was sort of you haven't played the, them? No, no. I, I've, oh. owned, I've owned them since I've had a PS4. I just haven't gotten around. To Man, it. they are really good. Like yeah. even now. Um, Obviously, I have a soft spot in my heart for it, so like maybe there's a bit of nostalgia there, but I still think it would hold up today. I, I played the original PS3 version, not the HD up- updated version. I played PS3 on PS3, so that held up. The true blue, uh, old school experience. Yeah. I mean, all this is to say, like, Naughty Dog, hugely um, influential and historic developer, especially, you know, throughout the 10s as it comes to narrative games, which I think I would consider The Last of Us sort of the, the pinnacle of. Yeah, and it is an odd like juxtaposition too. I'm gonna use that word again because it's fun. Um, Uncharted is very not serious. Like there's serious things going on. There's moments of action and tense excitement and things like that. But it's it's very much like a Hollywood summer blockbuster, basically. It's Indiana Jones. That's that's this, exactly what I was gonna say. I understand it to be sort of like Indiana Jones, moments of levity. Correct, but this is just like nonstop punch you in the face gut-wrenching story the whole way through i don't know this was like a 
big departure from what they were used to, and it landed really well. Not to say there aren't moments of levity in in The Last of Us, because to my mind, like some of the the downtime is is where I got the most enjoyment out of this game. You know, the interactions between Joel and Ellie. But we'll get we'll get to that. Um, let's stick on on this game and, and where it came from for just a sec before we dive into that. Um, I already mentioned it's hugely awarded, but um, maybe some some pertinent names to this: uh, Bruce Straley, the technology lead, uh, obviously hugely influential at Naughty Dog throughout the years. Neil Druckmann, who um, wrote this game and has gone on to write its sequel, wrote a bunch of other stuff as well, and now he's working on the HBO show, um, which we'll talk about, I'd imagine. <laughs> and finally, um, the composer, Gustavo Santoaya, um, which this soundtrack is moody as hell, and I really like it. So um, really like low-key acoustic guitar, good stuff. Yeah, it's one of those games where you almost don't even notice it's there, which is like the best kind of soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, Heightens the mood. Yeah, they even, uh, so you haven't played two yet. They really lean into that. I feel like the soundtrack got even better. Awesome. Well, there's even I... some Pearl Jam in there, man. There was some, <laughs> uh, and people were calling it out. They're like, this, this can't be accurate because this song came out after the supposed downfall of man they're like ah oh, they must have Joel must have heard it somewhere on a no, tour Joel just that, wrote it in that continuum that's all good <laughs> <laughs> Joel is Eddie Vedder reincarnated I guess. didn't we know that <laughs> um, that's a story for another time i guess but anyway yeah, yeah yeah i know there's so much discourse that came along after the release of the sequel and honestly like since i didn't have um a PS4 at the time. Now I have both PS4 and a PS5, although I guess now just a PS5. Um, I'm interested in going back and sort of, now that the dust has settled, seeing how the game actually plays. But uh, as you said, a story for another time. Um, so back on The Last of Us, um, the game, uh, as, as we've talked about, is is definitely in the, the vein of your post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic survival horrors. Uh, and in this world, it was caused by a fungus, which I thought was pretty novel. Even better, it's a real fungus. Um, it's something that uh, infects ants, I believe, in the Amazon currently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's totally believable if you look into it. It's just that that virus has found a way to cross over into humans. So terrifying. Yeah. It is. It is. Uh, the fungus is called cordyceps, and it basically, as you said, takes over the brain stem of its hosts and forces them to do things to make it itself proliferate uh, apparently the team got this idea from playing or watching the planet earth documentary that came out in 2006 <laughs> yeah it's in there and it's like i said it's frightening as hell you're like i've seen this before this is real isn't it and you look at it i'm like that certainly it sure is. is and now i'm sad i know that <laughs> yeah um but yeah, they also heavily utilized a book called "The World Without Us" and uh, took visits to places like post New Orleans or post Katrina New Orleans to get ideas for, you know, the um, you know ruins of, um, I guess, places affected by disaster. Uh, which is you know you could definitely see that influence. I don't know if you've um, been to areas affected by the flood in in New Orleans, but uh, you can see some of the influence there. Yeah, the world they built was super believable, so I have no problem believing that they did real-world research on that. Absolutely. Um, so um, I guess one other just sort of historical uh, thing that I wanted to put side-by-side side with this, and we talked about this a little in chat, uh, is that this game 
in, in its PlayStation 3 iteration came out just a, a couple years after Skyrim, which if I'm thinking about the <laughs> obviously we're comparing apples to oranges here, but the just hilarious blocking and facial animation or animation in general of the characters in, in vanilla Skyrim compared with this game um, yeah. is just Sky- wild. <laughs> Skyrim is a turd compared to this. <laughs> now, granted, Skyrim is meant to be very open and right. a sandbox where you can do a billion things. This is a very bespoke, very dialed in experience. I just so, think it's it's an interesting comparison just from the point of like where you put your money, right? Like it's it's very clear that the scope and expanse was the the big thing in Skyrim. Like modeling out an entire continent is much different than um modeling out uh you know, a series of very well decorated corridors and then pouring cash into the animations that take place within them. Now, time will tell that both of these approaches clearly played out very well. (laughs) Skyrim is still being re-released, so is Last of Us, obviously. I hope they can both stop. I think they've both reached their pinnacle, and they can stop, and we can go do something else now. Absolutely. The world doesn't need another podcast from us talking about The Last of Us Remake 2. Um, <laughs> well, but the last of us two remake, maybe who knows, um, or, or Skyrim that you can play on your dishwasher or whatever, whatever they <laughs> haven't gotten yet. I feel like it's on most things by now. That's right. Um, uh, it's the new doom, uh, play it on every electronic device with a screen that you own. So with that, uh, let's set up the world, right? Let's talk about this game a little more in depth, um, and what actually happens in it. So. The world of The Last of Us. Uh, Initially, you start off in the year 2013, the same year the game came out. As we said, an outbreak of mutant cordyceps fungus takes over the United States, transforming people into aggressive uh, zombies, basically. But no, they're not zombies. They're infected. Um, So keep that in mind. Uh, Our story starts as the outbreak is beginning and then jumps ahead 20 years after civilization has already been pretty much destroyed and the survivors live in quarantine zones that are overseen by the military. A pretty sort of totalitarian control situation going on there. And it sucks. This is a very pessimistic post-apocalypse to my mind. (laughs) Yeah. And I think... Back when this game came out, these probably seem like far-fetched ideas, but having just lived through the couple years we just lived through, it's just like, oh man, this hits a little closer to home this time playing it than it did last time. I thought it was interesting that they didn't catalog the fall, right? Like they didn't show that that 20-year gap. um, This game has an extremely deft use of time jumps. Um, And I think this was the first one, right? Obviously the, the first and the biggest. So 20 years later, you go from Joel, who is just a dad living in suburban Texas with his daughter, uh, to a hardened smuggler. And, you know, we we don't see how that happened, but we do get like a short newsreel that I almost immediately forgotten about what happened to the world at a macro scale in between. And I kind of like that. Like, I think letting your imagination fill in the blanks can be very powerful. Yeah, it doesn't need to be overexplained. Also, the fact that Joel went from being just a Joe everybody to, I mean... If you think about it in the terms of this game, he's the good guy. But if you think about it in terms of somebody you know, Joel is a really bad guy. <laughs> I don't think I, I think you're you're presuming a lot, <laughs> thinking that anyone would think Joel is a good guy. <laughs> in the context of this story, he he at least attempted to be the good guy. Um, yeah, I don't think there really are good guys in this story. Everyone's a piece of shit. 
yeah, Ellie's pretty good. Um, <laughs> is is um, she though? I mean, she's kind of. I mean, yeah, I mean, she's that, a kid, so. Oh, fair enough. Still, she murders people. She fair, fair. <laughs> Everyone in here has killed someone, and and they've done some really shitty things, and and it's just like again, this is almost like a a case study on what happens to people when they don't have uh, boundaries anymore, or when things start falling apart, how they choose to act. And again, sometimes the murderers were just like halfway decent people in this game. And it was other people like rapists and cannibals. And like, they really went deep into the pool of like the abysmal parts of humanity. Like they went for it. You see it all. You're actually, you're hitting on something pretty important is they, they make it very, uh, they make a, a, a great point of maybe not necessarily showing you that Joel's a good guy, but showing that everyone else is worse. <laughs> yeah, there are worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's probably like the the masterful trick that this game plays to sort of get you on on his side, because it's pretty clear from the start that, you know, one, he's not a likable dude. Two, he's a very violent dude. Um, he's a hard man making hard choices, right? Like that's kind of the thing with him. But he is also just, as you said, a regular dude with a backpack, right? Like, yep. To be fair, though, it's a testament to the world that they live in. When you first walk out your front door, you see three people being shot in the street. Like, mm. no no questions asked. Like, somebody sees something on a screen that says somebody might be infected, and they shoot everyone in the back of the head right there in the street. Like, that's just the world they live in. Like, death is certain, and it's around every corner. And Oh, yeah. You're, you're talking just, about chapter two in the quarantine zone, like, right after. Y- yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So... so Yes, you find out that he is doing or he has done bad things, but you immediately like it's all around you. I think at this point it's like unavoidable in everyday life, which is just yeah. part of the gig now. Yeah, the sort of the life in the quarantine zone where like they have no room for error. And as you said, if, if someone's even suspected of being bitten, like you're executed on the spot. Um, <clears throat> not great, but maybe we should back up a little bit because I think one thing that I really want to make sure we talk about is this game's opening chapter, which I think just... Uh, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> I can't talk about it. <laughs> we'll, oh. be, we'll, be, we'll be quick and I'll, I'll try and set it up. But it is like the gut punch to end all gut punches. And as I mentioned up top, like the game starts at the, the onset of the outbreak. And Joel, you know, it, I, I think it's just a masterstroke of, of getting you one invested in this character but then immediately like raising the stakes to an absurd degree like it's joel's birthday his daughter his teenage daughter sarah gives him a present um she goes to bed and in this opening scene you're controlling sarah the daughter um trying to remember so then basically you wake up to a phone call from his brother tommy who is frantic saying hey where's joel i need to talk to him she can't find him obviously um he is outside and by the time you find joel and downstairs as Sarah, he is loading a pistol and saying something's wrong with the neighbors. Um, and you basically get over to him just in time to see a neighbor crash through the side of your house and Joel shoots him dead. So immediately you're like, whoa, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's trauma happening here. Um, yeah, from a calm night into into all that immediately. And it only gets worse. Yeah. I mean, it basically culminates with like a frantic escape from the town uh, a T-bone car accident, Joel carrying Ellie into a dried out riverbank where as he tries to get uh, get to the highway, um, they are both suspected of being infected and um, a, a soldier actually ends up shooting at, at Joel, who is carrying Sarah, his daughter, and she dies. She is hit by those bullets, uh, 
basically he accidentally human shielded himself. There is the setup for all of Joel's trauma right there. Pretty, yeah, hard. The acting, okay, ignore the rest of the game. This one scene was acted better than most movies I've ever seen in my... I cry every time I play this. I've played it, I told you before we started recording here, that I've played this game at least four times, maybe five now. And I have not played it a single time and not just cried. And I do not cry. I don't cry (laughs) for movies. I don't cry for games. This game, every time I cry. Always. I mean, it's it's so potent, and it stays potent on a revisit. It really, you know, one, it it sets up the characters so well. It immediately endears you to uh, Joel and Sarah, and then immediately sort of destroys that. It is just brutal. And it sets up the thematic resonance of, as you said up top, Clint, that the humans are the, you know, the real problem here right at the top. You know, they weren't killed by, uh, or she wasn't killed by... Um, and infected. She was killed by an overzealous military uh, soldier. So. Who's letting fear drive him to do something he wouldn't normally do, which is, again, what happens to the entire world after this? It only gets worse. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, that that is the microcosm for like where the, the world ended up after after everything. So, um, as we said, there's a, the brilliant use of a 20-year time skip, and you are then off. Uh, you're off, basically, to you know, there's a short preamble in the quarantine zone that you start off with that, that you mentioned, Clint, where you're, you know, trying to do some sort of gang rivalry shit and get your weapons back from another smuggler with your partner, Tess, who seems to be like Joel's initial love interest. But then Ellie quickly comes into the picture and everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. This was an unintentional side effect to something he was doing elsewhere, but they run into Ellie, which... As, as you play along, you come to find... You're, you're tasked with smuggling her elsewhere, out of the city. And you end up finding out that she had been bitten at one point. And I guess they're trying to find a cure. Which Joel doesn't buy into, but Tess really does. And she kind of pushes it along. Like, you, we got to do this. Yeah, the key is that Ellie was bitten. And while most people turn within hours of being bitten... Ellie has had her bite for three weeks and shows no signs of turning. So they think that she is immune. And so, um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Joel and Tess, uh, who is his sort of hard scrabble smuggler partner, um, are tasked by Marlene, who is the leader of a group of people called the Fireflies, who are basically, um, think the Star Wars rebels, but they want to reestablish government instead of overthrow it. (laughs) Um, and they um, basically they're tasked by her to take Ellie, go to a lab where the fireflies can help them concoct a cure using Ellie's DNA or something like that. Um, more about that later. But uh, thus begins Joel and Ellie's uh, uh, fantastic adventure across the uh, plague-ridden United States, which is uh, the game, pretty much. I really like this, that it wasn't in one area you essentially do it, it. It's a going out west tale. Like that's that is an, a tale as old as time. There's so many stories told like that. It's like an almost like an old western. You know, go west, Heading young from, man. <laughs> yep, and you get you don't get to see all of it, but you get to see like oh god, what do we get? Um, Obviously, you, get, you start in Boston. You get to Pittsburgh. What else do you see? You go out to Wyoming, which is a huge jump. Utah, um, 
in between those, you hit a bunch of sort of random suburbs and things. The Firefly Lab is, is as we said, in Salt Lake City. Um, Wasn't Colorado in there too? Yeah, that you're in um, the University University of Eastern Colorado. Go Mountain Goats. <laughs> yeah. Bah. <laughs> Really, what this what this game eventually ends up boiling down to is, as you, had, as you said, Clint is like um, a really fantastic road trip where these two characters, Joel, portrayed uh, fantastically by Troy Baker, who portrayed uh, a shit ton of other people. You, you know who Troy Baker is, and Ashley Johnson, who plays Ellie, um, also portrayed a bunch of other people. Um, just basically put on a masterclass of like how good chemistry should work in video game voice acting and mocap. Yeah. And I really like that. Uh, it's a strange relationship up top. They didn't write the story in a way like, Oh, Joel is immediately replacing Ellie as his surrogate daughter. No. In fact, he actively pushes against it for most of the games. Like I think at one point he said, fuck you, you're not my daughter. Right. Yeah. And he and you could tell in his face he immediately regretted saying it, and then they parted, and then you're like, oh shit, is he ever going to be able to make this right again? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's it, he is like very much closed off at the beginning of this story, and even um, Tess, like when they initially take on the job, uh, Tess, who eventually sacrifices herself after she's bitten for allowing Joel and Ellie to escape, she says, um, "What was it? What was the line? Uh, she's just she's just cargo, Joel." Um, basically, you know, one, belying the fact that these two have no problem being human traffickers, but two, um, basically just trying to get Joel to go along with this crazy job that she clearly has more invested in than he does. Uh, and you see that at the end where, where Tess says, Hey, you know, what is all this for? You know, if there was ever anything between us, you need to make this happen. And that was her dying wish. And, you know, for part of the story, I think that's what's driving Joel. And then as Ellie starts to sort of grow on him and as you said clint he starts to project um his dead daughter onto her things change right and there's multiple and i don't know how far into this we want to go but there's there's several beats in the story where he could have offloaded her and even at the end where he really should have and then absolutely refuses to to the detriment of everyone like it turns, yeah, this is this is a love story between a father and his daughter that he lost and that he sort of regained again, pretty much. Yeah, I think it's it becomes very complicated because, you know, you can't just replace one person with another. But it's very clear that Joel has like this gigantic hole in himself where his fatherhood used to be and he's trying to fill it with something and that something becomes Ellie. Well, I think he was actively trying not to fill it and, it, <laughs> and you get to see him break down and finally say, no, I need this and let himself be open again. Which yeah. is really cool because, again, this whole story is about how people have gone to shit and everyone... Joel's a hard man because hard times made him be a hard man. And nobody has room for their humanity anymore. And you see just for a moment, one guy let it slip just for a second and open himself back up to it. Which is kind of like the, the cool part of the story. I want to uh, say that, for one, I agree with you that like it's a triumph of empathy. But at the same time, he also makes like an unambiguously 
poor choice from a utilitarian perspective. Not that that's a good perspective to take almost ever. But oh, the ending? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and maybe, well, we, maybe we can save that for the ending. Let's talk about the ending at the ending. Okay. All yeah. right. So we've gone pretty deep into character discussions. We've talked Joel. Um, we haven't really talked that much about Ellie, but maybe we could talk more about her as we talk about the mechanics. Yeah. If you want to go into sure. some mechanical discussion. So we've talked... Um, about the the table setting and, and the character stakes that are keeping you and pulling you through this game, but maybe we should talk a little bit more about the moment to moment. And by that I mean um, this game's pretty brilliant uh, feedback loop: basically explore, scavenge, fight, explore. Right. So yep. you are um, sort of intermittently taking on scavenging in bombed out, burned out houses and buildings, then eventually you will see some enemies out in the distance. And I think the interesting thing this game does with that is it always sort of headlines the fact that you get to choose when you engage with these people, right? You can explore around, but if you enter, say, a specific area, you know you're going to be getting into a fight. Uh, Maybe we should talk a bit about that scavenging aspect first, because there are a ton of fully abandoned neighborhoods and houses, and you are scavenging for materials, supplies, ammunition, And throughout doing that, you get a ton of really great environmental storytelling. Everything from notes to audio logs to completely unvoiced, ambient things that you just sort of see as you wander through a given house about what happened there. Yeah, and I really like how they have little responses to it, too. Like, little voice-acted things, like, reacting to what they saw instead of just, like, you, the player, catching it. But this was sometimes... We've talked about this before. The the scavenging and the crafting can be a bit too much, right? It just turns into all you're doing. And I never felt like that happened here. There's two things that this game did very well that most games before didn't do. The crafting, I think, was well-balanced. And two, this is pretty much a, uh, a buddy mission the whole time where you have to keep somebody alive. Those right. always suck in video games. Like <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst mission. Uh, what, what are they called? Uh, escort missions. missions. Escort missions. Yeah, yeah. they're freaking terrible. Um, but this game is an entire, as an entirety, is an escort mission, and they found a way to keep the AI on Ellie smart enough that she was out of the way, so you almost didn't have to think about it. But it mm-hmm. wasn't so unbelievable. Like enemies would like run into her and like, okay, why didn't they see her? Like they did a very good job of keeping her in sight, but away from enemies. Like I don't know how they did it, but it worked well cinematically. Yeah, it's true. Like, um, even in the, the version I played, I know they improved this. This is one of the things that I, I saw noted that was improved was um, the companion AI. But even in the version I played, like, Ellie is, for all intents and purposes, invisible. Like, she can dart out across uh, an opening and, and be in full view of enemies, but they won't see anything. Um, but she's small, right? Like, she's not a big hulking bear like Joel. <laughs> well, doesn't this kind of change towards the end of the of the game? Isn't Doesn't she slowly become, like, a combat additive? She does, yes. So Ellie, you know, she, she does start off sort of as um, very scared, um, and then eventually she will sort of get her first in-game kill, which we will later find out was not actually her first kill. Um, but um, then, you know, eventually there is a sort of ongoing progression where Joel continues to trust her more and more, initially with a little pistol, and then to cover him with a rifle. And then, um, you know, after a while, she's kind of in the thick of it with you. Like, if she sees you're attacking an enemy or an enemy's running towards you, she'll stun them with a brick or jump on them and stab them if you've given them a smack with a a two-by-four or something like that. Yeah, and this culminates in, after a while, which we don't need to give away every story beat here, but there's a time where basically Joel becomes unplayable because he's injured, 
and you basically take over as Ellie, and mm-hmm. you are now protecting him. Either way, one of the things I want to bring up here is that this, I think, informed one of my favorite games from recent times, which would be God of War. This reminds me a lot of the Kratos and Atreus situation on a lot of levels. Uh, the excellent voice acting and mocap was clearly, and, and just those soft little sweet moments in between giant breaks of violence that that was evident here and there and then also the the buddy system was also quite similar i agree with you and i think um the interesting thing about how i actually think this game might have done it slightly better is that this game allowed the character development of ellie to be slightly more believable right like this game takes place over the course of basically a year Right, but the the time between when Ellie departs Boston as a timid youth and the time when she's in, uh, let's see, I guess it's Jackson or uh, the mountains of Wyoming, stabbing the shit out of guys to protect Joel, um, is like nine months. Right, like the game starts in in summer and you're in almost spring by the time she's doing that stuff. So, uh, the weakness of the no cut God of War story for me was the wild swings in Artreus's sort of maturity and capability, but he is also, you know, a demigod or a god. Uh, so, you know, it, the believability can be suspended. <laughs> yeah. There's already um, other things that somewhat don't line up here. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I think that this game's use of those time cuts that I talked about earlier, like really sort of, it allowed me to sort of suspend my disbelief that Ellie would have become a survivor in that time, right? Like clearly these two have been through a lot together. Uh, a year's worth of shit, basically. And yeah. um, to me, like, I, I I think that really helped me, like, absorb the fact that, yeah, I was Joel, and now I'm Ellie, and I'm, you know, using all of the things that Joel taught her how to do to um, to take out this group of, of uh, hunters that are trying to, to take us out. Anyway, uh, one of those things that you're doing is, as both these, as we said, scavenging. But the question is, what are you scavenging for? Um, and and for the most part, it's it's simple things like ammunition. But also, uh, you mentioned crafting, Clint. You're scavenging for tape, blades, alcohol, rags, explosives, and sugar, the six main food groups of any good um, mm. post-apocalyptic survivor. Yeah. Um, and I thought this was pretty elegantly done, right? Like, the scarcity of these items means, hey, I'm going to craft a shiv. But when I craft a shiv, when I use it, I lose it. Um, and so it, it sort of helps make these choices about what you're crafting, what you're using these um, things that you're scavenging for very meaningful, especially on higher difficulties. And I know this is a small touch, but this is a game made with hundreds of small touches that just make it just perfect. But when you learn how to do things better, you don't have an upgrade tree that you're just like, oh, I'm putting my points over here. No, you find like field survival manuals that tell you how to like do something a little better. Like this is how you would make a trap. It looks like an old uh, boy's life, you know, Boy Scout magazine. <laughs> you're like, oh, like it's it's very believable. I love how they, they do this. Like yeah, everything really. felt just right. Here's how you tie a knot to make sure the shiv doesn't fall off the baseball bat for the mace you're trying to concoct. <laughs> um, yeah. They didn't have a boy's life explaining the exact part to puncture a man's vertebrae to kill him immediately. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you sure about that? <laughs> I never read that one. So, yeah. well, hey, true. Um, they must have uh, outlawed that one after a certain point. 
but yeah, I, I don't know, like the crafting thing, as you said, like we've we've raised up why, when and where crafting systems work and why. And I think in this game, like given it's a survival game and item and resource scarcity is a thing, um, it both plays into the setting, but then also allows you to be flexible with how you're handling a given situation. Because while we've alluded to combat, I think one of the sort of highlights of the way this game lets you handle it is you're very much allowed to go soft or go loud. Um Soft is probably preferred in uh, especially normal and above difficulties, um, but you do get an arsenal of guns. And, you know, sometimes you have no choice but to break stealth and uh, go guns blazing for a little bit. Yeah, I feel like if you join any situation with the intention of just shooting everyone outright, you're even on normal, you're probably going to lose. This is very much intended to be quiet as long as possible. It's it's meant to feel realistic. You're supposed to feel vulnerable. Um, be quiet as long as possible, and then when all hell breaks loose, just hope to God you have enough bullets. Yeah, it's like you sort of hit the this fader from going quiet to going stealth archer, a la Skyrim, to then going loud <laughs> once things fall apart. <laughs> and both feel really punchy. It feels really good. Some games don't, one or the other doesn't feel quite so satisfying, but this one, I don't know, either way, I think it has to do with the brutality of it and mm-hmm. the closeness of the camera. Like when you go up behind somebody and shiv them or choke them out. I feel like the camera almost like pulls in a little close and you can see their face. I don't remember if this was the case in the PS4 version, but in the PS5 version, when you're choking somebody out, you can literally see the eyes roll back into the back of their head as you choke. Like it brings you in close and makes you really tight in that moment. And it makes it really impactful. Yeah, absolutely. And the sneaking, the choking out, um, you, you can also use one of those shivs that I mentioned earlier to, you know, if you're in a hurry and someone may see you soon, you can immediately kill an enemy with a shiv rather than waiting for Joel to choke them out over the course of five or so agonizingly long seconds. Um, this game really draws that that death animation out if you're just using your bare hands, which is absolutely intentional and hugely tension filled. Yeah, because you're fully expecting something else to come around the corner every time you do that. Um, But as we mentioned, um, you do also get um, an arsenal of guns and then also sort of throwable weapons. You know, you have your sidearms, which you eventually get two holsters for, uh, for both uh, sidearms and long guns. And they all feel, to my mind, pretty unique and good, Um, except for the pistol and the revolver. I don't exactly know why they made those two different things, but everything else, like, uh, these guns all play radically differently and, and all feel pretty good. Yeah. I think uh, the difference was firepower. <laughs> it's, it's. do you want to reload? If you're a very accurate person, you would use the revolver because you don't, you're going you're going for headshots and you're going to take them out. Mm. Whereas with the handgun, you have a couple more in the clip, so it's not as worrisome, but you're not going to be doing as much damage. Okay. So more of a, um, more of a instant kill focus versus a, I need to slow this guy down and I'm just going to, you know, load six rounds into him to take him down. Yeah. Um, the oh shit pistol. Um, my oh shit weapon was always just the shotgun, uh, which is great shotgun in this game, by the way. Very satisfying shotgun. Um, and then you have a your your rifle, sort of a standard hunting rifle so, slash sniper rifle, eventually, and it uh, is also very effective. But all in all, I think my. Or sorry, go ahead, Clint. I was going to say, speaking of all these guns, can we talk about how the upgrade? For that was, holy crap. I've never seen anything like this, but when you upgrade a gun, you set it on a table, he rolls out his tools, and and no, knowing a little bit about guns myself, um, 
they actually have, you have to collect tools and, and the tools that you would need to perform certain actions. He'll pick up the tool and like, you don't get to see all of it, but you see a lot of it and he'll like upgrade it on the spot with the tool, put it all back together just so, roll up his mat and leave. Like it's little things like that that really sell this. Like you, you never leave the character. You see him do everything. I don't know. I will say that that is a uh, part one edition. Uh, that was not oh, it is. The, yeah. <laughs> but oh, no, I, I, that I, was I, so like, cool. Like I said, I know that from the, that that video. But that uh, I saw what you were talking about um, on that video, and yeah, it absolutely is additive because, as you said, there was no um, no shortcuts taken with those animations. Like they showed it all, or showed showed a lot of it. Yeah, I was blown away. Yeah, and it it I think it really fits into like the the care that they put into everything else like um you know there's not a lot of games where you can just look down any side alley in any environment at any part of the game and see like the most lovingly um animated alley that you've ever seen in your life <laughs> um but this is that game um it, it there, no corners were cut really every every house has a story to tell um and um to that end um i think you often find weapons where you'd expect them to be. Like if you have a house that you can see from uh, environmental storytelling that there was a kid in, there'll be a baseball bat, um, <laughs> you know? Um, and one of my favorite things to do with a baseball bat was chuck a brick at a guy and then follow that up with a quick run over and smack him with a baseball bat. Because um, you can craft your throwables, but my favorite ones are the ones you just find on the ground. <laughs> yep, which is either a brick or a bottle. There's not a whole lot of variation here, but they, they both the have their done. uses. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, you know, basically the bottles make more noise. They can be used to like distract enemies, make them look in a direction. The bricks will stun enemies briefly. And as I said, the, the brick to bat combo is kind of my go-to in this game. But uh, you can also craft throwables, which are great. I think this game has probably one of the more satisfying Molotov cocktails I've ever uh, played in a game. <laughs> yep, that and uh, don't they have like a, almost like a little? They have a smoke pellet a or smoke bomb and a or... grenade of some type with a bunch of shrapnel in it or something like that. You make it out of like a can of beans with yeah. some metal shards inside or something. I don't know. Yeah, this Uber Survival Man Bill basically teaches you how to make a proximity mine out of a can and some nails. Um, which I don't know if he's like got a bunch of Arduinos in there that can like do motion sensing or what, but this guy is like on the next level teaching you how to make uh nail can proximity bombs i um. love this character <laughs> only because we all know one guy like this that would if you live in the midwest you definitely know a guy like this <laughs> yeah there's always one and you're always like that guy's an idiot but this was like his time to shine and he was the only one left because he was ready for this <laughs> let's do a bill aside the crafting section seems about as good as anywhere to do the aside on bill survivor man um honestly i think this is one of my favorite sections of the game because um as you're first leaving boston bill's like or sorry joel's like i know this guy he lives in the outskirts of town his name's bill he owes me a favor we're gonna go we're gonna go find him he'll get he'll hook us up with a car and you go to this town and it's just replete with all of these like traps set and notes and it's it's very clear that he's like the only guy there he's basically doing i am legend um <laughs> and um he seems to be doing pretty good for himself like he's got his own like uh church basement house he's learning how to you know set up these trip trip mines out of cans and nails you know he's got a little life going for himself sort of i mean he seems to be doing well physically till you find out that his only friend 
possibly lovers killed himself because he couldn't stand being around him anymore. Let's not say possibly. It's very explicit that that was absolutely his partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which, uh, and the, I think let's just take an aside on that real quick because I think this game did a really deft job of being like, hey, you know, this is obviously a gay man, but also he is the most survival man, survival man in the entire game. Like, there's not much more mask things you could do than be a hardcore survival dude. Um, and they just didn't draw attention to it, but obviously, like, by the end of the interactions with him, it was very apparent. And I thought that was just, like, a pretty well-done character, you know? Yeah, they didn't overdo it. They they didn't need to, like, highlight all over it, but it's just one of the characters. Again, Ellie's gay, too. It, it, they That's don't right. make a yeah. big deal about it. It's just, like, who she is. And it feels very natural. Like, like they... You can always tell when something is added in as part of a checklist versus when it is... Um, something that's arrived through either naturally or because it was done by someone um, who comes from a place of authenticity. And I feel yep. like there is the, the writing here is coming from a smart enough place that it felt um, naturalistic to, to what was going on in the story. And that's really all you can ask for, right? Um, you know, these characters are treated with the same level of uh, respect and gravitas as anyone else. It is funny though, while, while they don't highlight it too much, if if you as Ellie do the thing that he tells you not to do, which is don't look at my, don't touch my shit, like she, there's like Beefcake magazine under there. She's like, what the fuck is this? Oh man, I think that that culminated in like my favorite moment of the whole game, where as they're driving out of town, finally, um, <laughs> Joel, or Ellie is like in the back seat as Joel's driving, and she's looking at very clearly a gay porno. And she's like, why are all these pages stuck together? And he's like, oh, well, really, I don't know. And she's like, calm down. I'm just fucking with you and tosses it. <laughs> <Yeah. out. laughs> <laughs> I love it. Because, uh, you know, another, like, we didn't talk about Ellie at super length, but, like, she is, like, the ideal smart-ass, hilarious teen. You know, neither of us are uh, fathers of teenagers yet. Um, but I have a daughter. And, um, you know, I'm sure someday she'll be a smart-ass teen. And, um I feel like Ellie is like the idealized version of a smart ass teen. Like, you know, that no one is as well adjusted as Ellie is in this game, uh, especially in the circumstances she's in. She was obnoxious, but in, in a endearing way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, teenage obnoxiousness, but, um, plays her, her endearing cards in spades for sure. Yeah. Speaking of Ellie, um, there is one thing that, uh, the exploration phase totally revolves around her with, and it is the puzzling aspect of this game, which I, for one, did not love. Um, you basically have like six tricks. Uh, you boost Ellie up on a ladder, you put Ellie on a pallet raft, you uh, move a climbable object into place, uh, or you open a chain garage door. Um, your last trick is, of course, killing folks, which we've already talked about at length. But yeah, I mean, I, I think really these just were a time for the player to slow down and listen to some banter between Joel and Ellie. <laughs> like I didn't really get a lot out of it from a mechanical perspective. Uh, agree. I think that they were trying to make you stop and focus on the conversation and not on trying to figure out some crazy thing. Again, if they, this is the hard part about pacing in games like this. If they make the puzzle too difficult, it takes you out of this experience entirely and you're focusing instead on some puzzle and not on what's going on in front of you, or it's getting frustrated and taking too long and you're getting annoyed with it and it breaks, you know, it breaks immersion. Yep. This is, this doesn't, yeah, this rides the line in the middle. You're right. It's, I was 
surprised at how many situations they got into that they could use a floating pallet to get out of. However, <laughs> or, or a ladder, yeah, or a board, you know. Yeah, I'm, it plays both ways. I think if they'd have made it super difficult, it would have broken immersion a lot too. So I don't. I, I I'm not going to hold it against them. I agree with you entirely. I'm, I'm not advocating for making it more difficult. Um, I, I don't really know how you solve this one, to be frank. Like, you know, the puzzles are pretty basic. And the interesting thing about them for me is the the, the most immersion-breaking thing about them is you can clock that they are go- about to happen as soon as you walk into a room. Like, oh, I need <laughs> to go up there. Uh, there's a ladder over there in the corner in the bushes. All right, I, I get it. I know what to do. Um, I think this is like the main point of immersion-breaking that this game commits to my mind is like, when you walk into a room and you see a bunch of waist high cover, you know you're about to have a fight in that room at some point, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Th- th- there's a desk and a gun sitting next to you. Like, oh, okay, okay, I know I what's happening. <laughs> so, I mean, like I said, these are are things that, for what I understand, are um, better in the sequel. I haven't played it yet, so I'll let you tell me if that's true or not. But the sort of like level design of the combat areas where like as soon as you enter and you clock that it's a combat area you're like okay well i know i don't have to worry right now as this character is walking me through it but i know at any minute i'm going to have to enter a fight yeah i would say that they definitely revamp combat quite a bit in the second one again you're not a newbie anymore you are a hardened veteran things mm. have changed you are more prolific in your fighting and the combat system you know reflects that I know yeah. the second one's highly divisive, but I think both of these games are 10 out of 10 for me, which hmm. is crazy. It, right. it lives up, in my mind, it, it lives up and, and builds on it quite a I'm bit. interested in trying it out. I, I'm sure I will at some point. Who knows? Maybe there'll be a cast on it one day. Um, but to that mind, I think when I was talking about, like, you you know, you clock what's about to happen if it's a puzzle or a, um, a, a combat arena or whatever, and it breaks immersion, I think... The interesting thing about that to me is is that um, you can immediately tell when an area isn't going to have either of those things because it's modeled to the nines and it looks amazing. And then if you see an area and it's got all of these like weird contrivances for these gameplay purposes, you know, be that combat or puzzling, like you can tell. Like you can always tell when an area is just for exploration versus if it also has to have that dual purpose um, because it's just you know, slightly less immaculate from a, a modeling and environment perspective. I think that might've been one of the things that they fixed up in, in the new one too. Cause I never felt like that at all. Hmm. Okay. I don't remember. I don't remember. I wasn't looking at it with that critical of an eye when I played it last on the PS4, but I can tell you that I was looking at it pretty critically this time for the cast <laughs> when I played it on PS5 right. and it, I didn't feel that obviously, you know, when you're in a combat arena because well, certain things are there. But. I was going to say, and, and it might even be, you, you're right that they might have fixed it up a little bit or made the environments feel a little more believable. But the other thing is like, it would be kind of hard for you to tell given the fact that you, you played the game a few times and you know where, you know where the combat beats are, you know? <laughs> yeah. For the most um, part. Yeah. Um, but the last thing I think we should hit on for combat is, you know, we already mentioned you're fighting infected sometimes, but you're also fighting humans. Um, and I think the the difference between these two types of battles and how they play out was was interesting to me like right the humans can talk to each other they have guns and weapons and can attack long range but the infected um there are basically there are different types of infected which i thought made this game really interesting right um the clickers who are blind but make they basically can only see sound um the runners who just sort of stand and moan until they see you and then they run at you 
and then the bloaters, which are big boys. <laughs> yeah, this made a really cool interplay too, um, because again, you're trying to be very quiet around the clickers, who are probably, I would say, the most dangerous of the um, common enemies, right? So you very much do not want to disturb them. But these other ones that can see you, the runners, they force you to move around quickly to stay out of their sight. So you have to like make split second decisions. Like, am I going to make noise now or am I going to get out of this thing's way? Oh my God, I don't know what to do. Like, you have to, it, It's like a, a constant choice between sight and sound and you kind of have to work your way through that in a stealthy way. Yeah, and the, the human battles are a little more cut and dry from my perspective, but um, the fact that they can talk to each other and, you know, if one of them goes away, this isn't like Metal Gear Solid, like if you kill a guy, they aren't just going to be like, oh, what, what happened? Um, they're going to actually stay on high alert if someone dies. Um, the AI is a, a little better than your, your average uh, here, which is commendable. Um, I also really like the dialogue there too like they didn't it, you're not just in combat like they're like yelling like fuck you get out of here we're gonna kill you like <laughs> oh my god they got johnny like I, I never heard any voice uh line repeated twice but it was very it felt very fluid and very believable like you felt like somebody had just found out there's an enemy nearby and they've taken out one of their friends and all yelling at you and at each other and it's all frantic and they're just as worried as you are. I don't know. It added to the humanity, the whole thing. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think like the, there's a couple levels where that absolutely stuck out to me. One was the Pittsburgh level where um, one, they're like, oh man, there's this guy and this kid who are running around killing people. And it turns out they weren't talking about you. They were talking about um, the other two that you met in Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. um, uh, what were their names? Harry and Hen Henry? Henry, Henry and Sam. Thank you. Um, you know, and they were great characters too. You know, tragic ending, of course, as with everyone in this story. But um, we don't go too deep on them. But I really like the moments between uh, Sam and Ellie. Um, you know, two kids just being kids in the in the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. I also remember like all of the banter between the enemies when you are as Ellie. You know, talking about we know this guy's here somewhere. He's killed so many of our people. We got to get him. And you know, you as Ellie are like, oh man, Joel really, Joel really stirred the. Um, the bee's nest with this one and she's just making her way around slowly trying to keep him from getting killed while he's incapacitated. Oh, you're talking about the in the DLC? Uh, yeah, yeah. So there, yes. maybe now's a good time to talk about that because it also has my favorite iteration on the combat that literally they only have for like 30 minutes of this game, but it is utterly brilliant. Um, so the DLC um, takes place in the sort of both in the middle of the main game where you're playing as Ellie and then also in a prequel to the main game where you're playing as Ellie before she met Joel. Um, that's where you learn a bit about Ellie's backstory, but also from a combat perspective, you do probably the coolest fights I've ever experienced. I have experienced in this game where you have both um, infected and humans, and you're basically luring the infective to enemy humans and letting them fight while you just sort of manipulate things from the shadows. And it is brilliant. Yeah, it works really well. Uh, it makes your life a hell of a lot easier than trying to take them both head on. It took me a minute to realize that's what I was supposed to be doing, because again, I'd played the whole main campaign, never had to do that, and then now all of a sudden... I feel like this is such an underutilized trick in this game. Like, it's it's so good, and it works so well. Um, and I'm surprised it, they didn't do it more. I'm, I have a feeling that was probably something that they wanted to add in the original game and didn't have time. So when they did the DLC, they're like, let's try it out. I'm pretty sure you can do that in the second one. I'm pretty sure that's, that's, that's part of the combat. So 
Good. I'm, I'm glad they they doubled down on that because it was it was a really great iteration on the the theme. Did you have any other thoughts on the DLC? Just that if you're playing this game, make sure you play it. Like it's super additive. Like some DLCs, I feel like are kind of hamfisted in there. It's like doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This was perfect. It gives you the a lot of background on Ellie. You you get to see what happens when she did get bit and and where she came from right before this. And then you also get to have like a really I don't know. It's like a helpless moment with her where. She's not really combat hardened yet, but she's trying to protect Joel and she gets mm-hmm. thrust into this crazy situation. I don't know. It's really good. It's only two hours, too. I think it's it's a quick one, but it's really good. I totally agree. It's super quick and you get to see Ellie in her sort of uh, pre-road trip, um, you know, school-aged romance with uh, one of her friends. And um, it is appropriately awkward for a young teen romance (laughs) (laughs) i i really did like how awkward it was they they did a really good job again every time they try to tell a story i feel like they really nail into the emotion that they're trying to convey and they did a really good job here um yeah you really feel for the character afterwards Mm -hmm. totally it definitely sort of fleshes out ellie just that much more and and just makes the whole thing hit that much harder So obviously, you know, in, in the year since its release, we've had uh, two remakes, a sequel, and now an impending TV show. So I, you know, obviously this is a game that uh, has had long legs in terms of its its legacy, what it's trying to say. And I guess um, I just want to talk to you about, you know, any one of those things. Like, what do you think about the TV show? Um, what do you think about, like, what this did to the industry, what this did to games after it came out? Uh, any of the above? Yeah, I mean, this was... I think I told you I recently pulled my old PS3 out, out of uh, out of storage, and I was looking through all like the top 25 lists because I'm like, what are the must-play games? And they were wildly different in their opinion, except every single one of these lists had this is the number one PS3 game. So <laughs> it's 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 no question this game has huge impact. Um, whether you like it or hate it, the impact is massive. I think we just talked about how how many through lines we could find to. The recent God of War game, I think it changed people's ideas on narrative and games massively. Like, Uncharted did it too, but this one I think really just drove it home. Like, games can be art. This is almost a movie that you get to experience. I I think this kind of set the mold for, like, the awards bait, grim, dark game that that comes out. And I think, you know, people would say that this is, like, the, the beginning of the dad game renaissance. And, you know, to my mind, like, there was definitely a trend there for a little while, but it, it strikes me that really it was just a, a flash in the pan trend. And, you know, uh, there have been a few very high profile dad games that followed in this game's wake, but I don't think that is necessarily something we can fully attribute to this. That being said, as, as, as you said, from a narrative perspective, I think this game set a bar that everyone felt a need to try and chase after. And it has been um, definitely to our joint benefit <laughs> that that is yeah. the case <laughs> i'd say they're still chasing this bar i don't know a whole lot of games that that meet this bar of excellence for storytelling um you mentioned the tv show i'm very hopeful that that'll be good one because it's hbo and mm-hmm. with that with them they can afford to do the kind of anybody else i would have been worried because this is like really dark subject material like darker than usual darker than dark yeah and the fact that 
it's, it's the same guy. Neil Druckmann was essentially, I mean, he was essentially a movie director for all the mocap for all this anyway. He, it was his vision and he was directing all that then. If he's still the one involved now, I think it's going to probably be fine. Yeah, I mean, and let's not discount the fact that we got Pedro Pascal um, as Joel, who, uh, you know, the Mandalorian, uh, Oberyn Martell, Javier Pena from it. Narcos. I absolutely can see it, and the guy's yeah. great. So I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Um, Bella, uh, the Bella Ramsey who plays Liana Mormont from Game of Thrones is going to be Ellie. Uh, if you remember her, she was the the Bear Island princess. Uh, she was like the only child. Um, yeah, princess. I don't yeah. know about that one yet. I, I got to wait and see. So she was like really stoic and like mm-hmm. one dimensional in in that in that show. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Ellie is not like that at all. So I, I'm <laughs> right. I, I'm, I'm assuming you know. I'm assuming it's gonna be fine, but I'm interested to see her in a different kind of role. Yeah, agreed. And you know, um, by the time you know in the future when folks are listening to this, um, hopefully our our hopes will bear out. Um, but I guess one final thing that I wanted to make sure we we hit on is this game's title. It's called The Last of Us. Who is us in that statement? And, you know, from my point of view, this is Joel having a, an extremely narrow view of us. Uh, basically, at the start of the game, it's him. It's him, then it's him and Tess, and then it's him and Ellie. Um, and I just wonder what you thought about that. Like, this is a game, I, I guess, about like the hope for the future of humanity. But, but it's, it's not. called The Last of Us. No, it do- doesn't end up playing out that way, right? <laughs> you could also look at it from the from the uh, lens of the ending, not the beginning where he has a choice to give Ellie to the Fireflies. And he does. He finds out that for them to develop a cure, which they're pretty sure they can do, which would could possibly save all of humanity, it would kill her to do it. And he decides that he's lost too many people, and he's not going to lose another daughter, and he'd rather fuck over everybody on the planet than lose her. And he makes that choice. So maybe that's it. That It is The Last of Us, because... He wasn't going to lose her, and he made the choice. Yeah, at the very end, it's just us. And for him, us ended up being him and Ellie. And Against yeah, the world. I mean, yeah. It, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, at the very end, Joel, you know, basically, as you said, decides to go full Rambo on the Fireflies, takes Ellie out of their uh, custody as they're about to surgery her to find a cure, um, which, by the way, apparently just will involve removing her brain from her head. So definitely a death sentence. Um, and when he finally takes her away and she wakes up as they're driving away um he tells her this lie like there were you know dozens of others like ellie and the fireflies have given up on finding a cure and when they finally get back to jackson where his brother and his and his brother's wife are waiting to take them in ellie asks him she says um you know uh is everything you told me about that situation true and he says yes and to my mind, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I think that is just a shared lie that they are both telling themselves. Like, I don't think either of them believe that. She knew that. She, I mean, she pauses for like 10 seconds and all she says is, okay, and mm-hmm. that's it. Like, they both fucking know that that's... They yeah. both know. And, and, and that's... That's one of the, another one of those heartbreaking moments. Like, he saved her, but he's also in that moment, he's lost her again. Yep, yep. He saved her. He has, he has secured their future together, but at what cost? Um, and at, at the end of that whole thing, just remember Ellie, like the thing she kept saying throughout the whole course of the game is it can't all be for nothing. And yet 
at the end of the game, where does it, where, where, where are we left? On a micro level, or on a macro level, we, we've done nothing, but on a micro level, obviously, Joel's whole world has changed, and he wasn't willing to give that up. I think that's where The Last of Us comes from, not from the other side. I think the title should have been The Worst of Us, because that was <laughs> really what this game puts on display. <laughs> that's right. We didn't even get into our um, you know, cannibal pedophile, David, played brilliantly by Nolan North. Um. <laughs> oh, and he did such a good job selling that. <laughs> he sure did. I, did uh, I didn't know that was Nolan North. That yeah. was the other game. Let's say if, if you ever want to know who like the top two names in video games, or at least for, for male protagonists, it's Nolan North and uh, Troy Baker. Yeah. Troy Baker, almost always. Absolutely. And with that, let's sum up our thoughts on The Last of Us with a three-word review. My three-word review is Dilapidated Dad Darling. While The Last of Us is probably best known as the granddaddy of all modern awards-baiting action games, it is more than just a critical darling, and it's also much more than the sum of its parts. The cohesiveness of the action, exploration, and storytelling is still among the best you'll find, but where the game really shines is how well the characters work within this construct. And this is no better exemplified than in the relationship between Joel and Ellie. Joel was, after everything, still a dad at heart, and after his long journey with Ellie, he somehow found someone new to project his fatherhood onto, which is weird, but kind of sweet, and extremely complicated. Not just by the standards of games, but by the standards of writing and storytelling in general. It's rare to be able to hold a game side by side with cinema and the written word in terms of nuance and storytelling, but I feel that The Last of Us can support the comparison. And the best part is that it does this by leaning in on the quiet, interactive moments of exploration that video games do best. So as I was making my way through yet another depleted, broken-down house, and Ellie noticed a subtle detail, hinting at the story about folks that used to live there, I could feel a smile spreading across my face in the same way I'm sure it did for Joel, and in the same way I'm sure it did for everyone who played and loved this game. A dilapidated dad darling. Nice. My three-word review is beauty and brutality. Um, The Last of Us is a masterclass in video game acting and storytelling like we talked about. I can't think of a single game that brings such an impactful story to the table and then capitalizes on it so well with motion capture and voice acting, especially considering when this was released. So when this game came out on PS3 almost a decade ago, it was way ahead of its time in this regard and is pretty much, it's been re-released twice each time increasing the fidelity of the acting um, along the way, and the results were and continue to be astounding. This game is designed to evoke emotion from you, and it does it very well. Love, hope, grief, terror, and utter disgust are all things I felt when I was playing this game, and quite strongly. And I'm not one to shed a tear, but like we talked about, I can tell you that every time I play this game, no matter what, I'm always brought to tears in the opening hour of the game. Um, I've played more video games than I care to count, and I can say with complete certainty that no other game has ever made me feel like that. Um, It cuts to the core and it really forces the viewer to feel the world and what's going on inside of it, which sometimes is beautiful, but often is pretty atrocious. Um, The game depicts a world in which disease and famine has ravaged the earth and still the worst thing we have to worry about is how we treat one another. And it shows the stark contrast between the beauty of the human experience and the absolute depths to which we can fall when given the chance and left to our own devices. It pulls no punches, and it's as intense as it is brilliant. So if you haven't played this game, you owe it to yourself to give it a try. Because if this isn't one of the most prime examples of video games is an art form, I really don't know what is. 
absolutely agree. Um, huge endorsement from uh, both Clinton and myself, it sounds like. And uh, with that, I want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on enduring and surviving. I guess to, to add on sort of what you were saying at the very end there um, in your three word, um, you know, Joel was obviously a very brutal dude, right? Like he was protective, paranoid, extremely conservative by nature, but it was kind of that that allowed him to be probably the only person that was capable of getting Ellie to that lab. Um, oh, right? for sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's what it took. Again, this we're talking about him being a bad dude but is he really a bad dude or is he or is, is he a this version dude? of him just what it requires in a, in a world like this right he's not he's not just a bad dude he's a bad dude um yeah but he's also a badass um you know i i don't know i i, I hear i agree with you on that and i guess to my mind i guess that same that same part of him that you know allowed him to be the only person that was sort of brutal and like pragmatic enough to make that entire journey and keep them both safe is also what drove him to destroy the entire point of the journey at the very end of it um, which is extremely ironic <laughs> yeah also i like that it didn't I, I i like that he did that like when i first saw the game like holy shit he's gonna let that happen because that's how storytelling usually goes i couldn't believe that they allowed themselves to do that in that moment yeah because that is what he would have done like but I, I've never seen a video game or, or a movie for that fact. Just get to the end and be like, yeah, fuck all that. I'm fucking over the entire world for one yep. person. No, I mean, you know, I said up top, like, he's a hard man making hard choices. But, like, all the choices, no matter how bad they may seem or look from the outside, are pretty understandable on a personal level. Like, it's pretty easy to give advice and know what the right choice is, right? Like, I, for example, know I should eat vegetables and work out every day and volunteer at my local charity. But um, that's a lot easier to say than do on a consistent basis, right? Yeah, and he had to make a decision in a split-second moment. It's not like he had time to go, I'm going to go home and think about this. He either had to react immediately, viscerally, or... Or leave and leave her to die and never see her again or even say goodbye. And in that moment, he snapped and said, not again. And that felt very real to me. Yeah, it strikes me as a person who's like burned by a moment of hesitation in the past and will never let that mistake happen again. Um, and I think if you if you project that, which, you know, clearly we said was um, a theme coming right out of that very first heartbreaking chapter. You can see it play out in every decision he makes from there on out throughout the entire story. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's not always like good moral choices, but it's probably the most pragmatic one for the moment. I could have talked about this game for hours. Like I was worried, like every time we like kept like going back out into something else, like, oh God. And there's whole areas we didn't talk about. Like, holy shit, we didn't talk about the um, 
the the pedophile cannibals at all. Like, holy crap. <laughs> like, this game really does not pull the punches. It, it hit every, like, zombie movie trope, right? Like, but it did them all, like, in an, and with enough of a twist and with enough of a deft hand that it felt, like, totally at peace and cohesive with the rest of the story. Um, you know, this journey across America where each chapter and each season gives you a different flavor of survival epic. Um, just, it's a great idea and it's it sounds it sounds impossible to have it work out as well as it did, but I'm glad it did. Yeah, everything was just so. 